0: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
1: Hey, I'm Susie Ahn, and you're listening to Reset from WBEZ Chicago.
0: I just want to tell you, we're back, we're ready, and why not Chicago.
1: Chicago leaders want to bring the 2024 Democratic National Convention here. And we're up against some pretty hefty competitors, New York City, Atlanta and Houston. But if you're a history buff, you know this wouldn't be the first time the DNC was in Chicago. We played host in 1996, and it was also hosted here, of course, back in 1968. At that convention, clashes between anti-war protesters and police led to an all-out battle on Michigan Avenue. On this episode of Reset, we'll learn how the 1968 DNC was a turning point for politics and media. Heather Hendershot is a professor of film and media at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of the forthcoming book, When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing of America. That book will be out this fall. She's here to break it down. Let's set the scene. It's August 1968. What was going on in America at that time?
0: Oh my goodness! It's chaos. It's a very difficult time, right? The Vietnam War is raging. The protests against the war just continuing to accelerate. You've got a whole series of urban uprisings since you know Watts in 1965. You had Detroit in 1967. I mean, 43 people died in Detroit. You've got Newark. Um, and a number of assassinations, right? Martin Luther King mm-hmm. was assassinated in April. Uh, Robert Kennedy, who had been a, a hopeful for uh, the presidential nomination with the Democrats, was assassinated in June. Um, after King was was killed, there is an uprising in uh, Chicago, and, you know, 200 buildings were destroyed, nine people are killed, there's $9 million in property damage, just the city is burned. Yeah. And uh, Mayor Daley says, uh, you know, I I thought that I'm surprised that the superintendent of police didn't issue a shoot to kill order against arsonists and a shoot to maim order against looters. (laughs) So that gives you a sense of the kind of uh, yeah. feelings that right and the and the and the difficulties that were flying around in 68. Yeah, so we've got a uh, lot general, Yeah,
1: a yeah. lot going on at that time um and and we'll get a little more into that but remind us again um the democratic candidates running in this primary election.
0: Oh, oh sure. So you've got Eugene McCarthy is running and he's the peace candidate and you've got Hubert Humphrey running who had been uh President Johnson's LBJ's vice president. And everyone pretty much knew that Hubert Humphrey was going to get the numbers. He was going to get the nomination, and it it would. You got to remember that back then you actually voted at the convention and selected the candidate. Now we have more of a pre-selection process, right? So mm-hmm. they were going to vote, and the number of votes that McCarthy got was basically a symbolic way to stand up for a peace plank against LBJ's uh, more hawkish, you know, war plank.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: uh, those are the candidates. And uh, the party is in crisis because LBJ is not running again. And also they have this ongoing crisis of the southern delegations who haven't come around to the fact that the Democratic Party is transforming into the party of civil rights. Yeah. Um, So there's a lot going on with the party. So we
1: mentioned um, a lot going on with the party, a lot going on in the country in general. Um, weeks mm-hmm. before the convention, there were thousands of protesters heading to Chicago to demonstrate. Mm-hmm. Tell us about them. What did they represent?
0: The protesters are are mixed. They're there to many of them are there to protest the war. They're there to protest the nomination of LBJ. Um, it's a mix of hippies and yippies. Um, some people very, uh, very political, very politically and Other people more in a sort of, they're just there to have, a, I wouldn't call it a love-in. They, they were going to have a celebration of life, you know, mm-hmm. festival of life in, in Lincoln Park. Um, and they just want to be there to speak out for a different way that America could be. So there's utopianness there. There's more practical uh, activists who hope to do something and uh, and to speak out against the war, and they're gonna, they want to march to the convention center during the nominations, you know, and and take a stand outside the convention center, yeah. and they can't get permits to do it. They can't get permits to sleep in the park at night. Um, there's the the organizers thought there would be, you know. 50, 100,000 people there. And uh, there was so much anxiety about all the police and so on that yeah. uh, that Daly had gathered that only 10,000 people showed up. So there was more security than actual people yeah. there. Protesting.
1: Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, so so Richard mm-hmm. J. Daley, the, the mayor at the time, um, mm-hmm. what I guess we could kind of tell what his take was on these protesters. Talk a little bit more right. about like some of the tactics that he took.
0: Wow. Okay. So he basically turned the city into a fortress. He put tar on the manhole covers so no one could hide in there uh, with a, a weapon or a bomb. He put barbed wire around the convention center. He put the entire uh, police force of 12,000 people on 12 hour shifts constantly. He brought in 5,000 National Guards. Uh, guardsmen. There were also a thousand Secret Service and FBI agents, and many of them were undercover and became sort of agents provocateurs during the the protests. So basically, if you add up those numbers, um, something like 17,000 on the security side, and you've got 10,000 demonstrators, you can see the sort of overkill mm-hmm. for uh, security and wanting to make sure nothing went awry. And Daly wanted to exhibit complete control over the situation. Um, He also had great anxiety that there might be riots along the line of what happened after Martin Luther King was assassinated in April when there had been such a huge uprising, as I mentioned before, in Chicago. And so Daley was concerned that people of color specifically in Chicago would rise up. Which was a misunderstanding yeah. because the protesters were uh, mostly, it was mostly white protesters in the street, and the big racial issues and discussion were happening within the convention hall, but not among, uh, not among the protesters. Um, but that gives you a little idea of his, you know his attitude and yeah. what he was you know, doing on the ground to prepare for this. And tell us about the
1: media at the time uh, where Where do they fit into the scene?
0: Well, it's really fascinating you know when the network news shows up. Um, you know, before Chicago, network news people, the anchormen like like Walter Cronkite and Huntley and Brinkley are generally seen as fairly trustworthy uh centrists, you know, people who give both sides of the issue. And of course people didn't say you know both sides back then, mm-hmm. but they were trying to prevent a, present a very neutral kind of point of view. Cronkite in particular was a sort of uh, celebrity, was beloved by his fans. It was called Uncle Walter by people. He was sometimes, he'd been voted several times uh, in surveys, you know, the most trusted man in America. And so, uh, very different from how a lot of people think about media now. The idea that the media might have some kind of bias or specifically a liberal bias. did pre exist Chicago, but it really intensified after Chicago. Mm. Going into Chicago, I'll tell you who was concerned that maybe the liberal had a media bias. It was people on the really far right, um, on the more respectable side, people like William F. Buckley, and it was people like uh, segregationists in the South who did not care for how the networks were mm. covering. Uh, the, the movement to desegregate. They thought it was biased against them. But the mainstream idea was that they were very neutral and unbiased. And after Chicago, that changed rather dramatically.
1: Well, protesters were posted up in Lincoln Park even before delegates got there. Uh, they were eventually attacked by police. Let's take a listen. The truck is spraying a gas. The kids are now moving back into the street. They're fighting and pushing and shoving. Now, that was from the day before the convention, and there was already fighting. So it's the first day of the convention. TV cameras are rolling, but they're not capturing any of the chaos in the streets. Uh, What's going on there?
0: Absolutely. When I heard that, I was wondering if that was a radio segment, because a lot of the radio people were more in the streets than the than the TV people. Um, and, you know, before the convention started, the police were slashing tires on cars that had McCarthy stickers on them instead of Humphrey stickers, oh, wow. right? And there was a lot of fighting. One uh, young man was killed, before, uh, a protester was killed before the convention started. Um, but then when the convention started, it seems that the networks tried to, they would report when one of their lead reporters was injured, okay, mm-hmm. by police, because police were beating not only protesters, but people clearly marked as press. If you had a camera in your hands, the camera would be hit out of your hands and the lens would be broken. Um, if you turned on a 16-millimeter camera, you had to turn on lights to go within. The police would kick out the lights or beat out the lights wow. you know, so that your equipment was destroyed. And the networks covered that very carefully. They didn't want to over complain about the brutality, I think, because they were trying to be fair to Chicago and fair to Daly. And so when they showed this explosion of violence on Wednesday night, which we usually call the Battle of Michigan Avenue, and anyone who's seen any documentary about America in the 60s has seen footage of the blue-helmeted police beating people in the streets for 17 minutes in front of the Chicago, the Conrad Hilton Hotel, you know, when they finally showed that brutality, Mm -hmm. uh, people... It didn't see this was part of what was sort of going on all week. It was an explosion, yeah. <laughs> and they thought, "Wow, w- what happened?" You know, the ne- you know the networks aired and this this sort of thing, and so they had really been undercovering uh, quite a bit of that violence. But let me add, it wasn't just out of a sense of uh, journalistic propriety or ethics. Okay, Daly did everything he could to censor the media, yeah. and uh, he saw the media as his enemy. And so they – it was very difficult for them to cover the violence because Daly had found a way to prevent them from doing live coverage outside of the convention hall.
1: Wow. He yeah. made
0: it impossible for them to – he denied them parking permits for the trucks they needed for live uplinks. <laughs> he – there was an electrical workers' strike. This is so important. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers was on strike, and part of the fallout from that strike was mm-hmm. that you couldn't do uh, the live telephone hookups that you yeah. needed to do live footage. So even that Battle of Michigan Avenue that we think we saw live, they they recorded that. They gave it to motorcycle carriers who raced it back 50 blocks mm-hmm. to the amphitheater and finally got into Walter Crankytans and it goes on the air, you know. Well, but he had done everything he could to keep that sort of imagery out of the news.
1: Yeah, so, so a real stranglehold yeah, on what some, was going on outside.
0: Exactly, exactly, a real stranglehold. Yeah, yeah
1: so eventually things went... Haywire inside of the, the convention center, too. Um, let's take a quick listen to that.
0: There is a, an awful mess in the aisle here between the uh, South Dakota and New York delegations. Now, the men who work either for Andy Frayne or the Secret Service or the police or somebody, all these guards in civilian clothes have linked hands.
1: Uh, this sounds like utter chaos. Remind us of the issues politicians were trying to solve at at this DNC.
0: Wow. Well, uh, there's the battle over over Vietnam, right? And trying to shift the the Vietnam plank to a more of a peace uh, plank uh, and different from LBJ's plank. So there's that. Um, there is uh, there are several crises around the seating of alternate delegations. Basically, Southern delegates. Uh, showed up having had an unfair delegate selection process, like in Georgia, for example. That's a great example. The governor of Georgia is Lester Maddox, famous segregationist, most famous for chasing uh, people of color out of his fried chicken restaurant with a pistol and uh, a pick handle. Okay, and based mm-hmm. on this, ex- this this notoriety, he's elected governor of Georgia, and he is showing up at the convention with. Uh, a self, you know, hand-selected collection of delegates. An alternate delegation comes in, red by, led by the young rising politician Julian Bond, and they're trying to get their delegation seated instead of the Georgia delegates. And they end up uh, sort of sitting side by side and you know splitting the vote. But those sorts of challenges are going on across numerous mm-hmm. states. There's one from Texas. There's one from North Carolina. There's a big one from Alabama on the second day. Yeah. Um, so. And then there's a crisis of, you know, the recording you just played. We heard Andy Frain, you know, which is a security agency and plainclothes police officers and Secret Service. The floor was flooded with security forces in addition to delegates and journalists. Yeah. And so it was a constant sort of crush, like, a, you know, almost a, a mob scene. Yeah. And at one point, I think the footage you played might have been when Dan Rather, the CBS journalist, was was punched. And fell to the floor, you know. Uh, and the same thing happened to Mike Wallace. CBS.
1: Wow! So a lot of just a lot of be, chaos happening there.
0: A lot of chaos, and you couldn't be like, "Who are you, sir?" Because they were, you know, they were Secret Service or <laughs> right. clothesmen, or and they wouldn't even identify themselves. Yeah.
1: I mean, um, so a lot, a lot going on there. Crazy. But we, we yeah. unfortunately do not have uh, the time to to get deeper into this, um, but I want to end with um, this. You you have said that fake news was born at the 1968 DNC. Um, in, in just the few moments we have left, can you explain that?
0: Sure. Um don't no, be too anachronistic. No one was using the word fake news. Mm-hmm. But the leverage for this idea of liberal media bias really grew out of this convention because of Daly's attacks on the journalists afterwards and because of the way that Richard Nixon just weaponized the idea of liberal media bias with his vice president, uh, 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 Agnew, right? And so you have a shifting critique of the media where – People said you Mm -hmm. should have told your story better. You should have shown how the provokers were protesting people. If you if you had taken more images and edited them together, we'd have a better story. That's different from today where people say, oh, I saw that image and it was fake. Yeah, it's not real. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's not just like poor journalism. It's like. Fake duplicitous journalism is the idea that people have criticized the news mm-hmm. today. That's um, Heather
1: Hendershot, professor of film and media at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Her book, When the News Broke, Chicago 1968, and the Polarizing of America, will be out this fall. Thanks for joining us, Heather.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for today's Reset. Keep checking in with us for a daily dose of news and conversation on politics, the economy, arts and culture. We drop a new episode every weekday afternoon and sometimes on the weekends, too. I'm Susie Ahn. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.